Welcome to Let's, Let's talk, talk About, about gay, gay Stuff, for the podcast where we talk about gay stuff and discuss the week in LGBTQ history. Q plus history. What's going to happen when we go to conversion therapy and we're not gay anymore? Are we still talking about gay stuff? What, wait, is it going to be when you finish conversion therapy or start? Because finish, honey, we're going to be here a long time. Excuse me, I'm only the instructor, not the student. Ooh. You're the instructor. Let me know if you have any cute students that need converting back. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? That was an episode of Will and Grace where they uh, had conversion therapy. When there was the newer version where they, it was Jack's grandson, uh, was uh, um, going through conversion therapy. And that was like, oh. But then there was one where he had, oh, yeah, it was Will and Grace. It was Jack was, uh, Neil Patrick Harris was the guest on it. And they, uh, it was all these couples. These were all married couples. Um, but it was lesbian married to a gay man and yeah it was heavy it didn't sound like you've watched the episode it's been a long time what did i say i don't know did you, did you hear about florida and gay conversion therapy no they just the state of florida made it illegal for cities to um make it illegal and so and they also made it legal for you to practice out of your home so you don't have to have like a clinic you can just so you can practice gay conversion therapy outside yeah. of your home isn't that just called church i know <laughs> No? Church in the basement. Yeah. yeah. Hello. Anyways, we Anyways. Uh, we've already dipped into it. I think you know who we are, but we are Thomas, Tony, Kendall, and he remembered his Kendall. name today. And this week we're reviewing the week. I've been taking my meds. Feb sixteenth through the twenty second, and we'll discuss my Flintstones. The premiere of Audrey Lord, Sylvia Rivera, and Dame Edna. All right. So it's gonna be a, it's gonna be an episode. One for the books. We just announced. Books. Put your panties on, yeah. girls. Books. Yeah. So uh, we sell it, girls. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah. So what happened this week? Anything fun? What happened to you? You just got back from a trip, didn't I'm you? Are you in San Francisco? How was it? Uh, yeah, I'm struggling. Like I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> It's been a, a struggle. Week. Well, one because the hills, right? I mean, we live in Houston, so it's right. flat as anything. What did you like, walk there? Yeah, you flew right. <laughs> yeah, my arms are tired. Dun, 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 dun. Dad, oh, there's a dad joke competition at Eureka Heights Brewing in a couple weeks. <laughs> That's a plug. We should uh, we should talk to them about sponsoring. Actually, um, uh, my coworkers we, like there was a conference in Houston this week, so we all went out. And my coworker got in at three in the morning, and he texted our boss oh, nice. at three in the morning. He's like, "Hey, do you want to hear a construction joke? Hold on, I'm working on it." <laughs> was your boss out? That's with a you, lesbian joke. With you guys? Uh, Early on, yeah, he went home early, oh, but, so uh, he, but he's pretty cool. And yeah. the reason my coworker knew this is the next morning the boss is like, well, no, we might need to get you some therapy. And he's like, why would my boss text me that first thing in the morning? So Conversion yeah. therapy. So conversion. I told him that there's a dad joke competition. Send him away. I'm con- conversion therapist. You're converting. <laughs> That's on your business. It doesn't get part. anywhere. Let's no. talk but about we work hard on it. Work hard for the money. Let's talk about You do it by immersion. You know, immersing them in the the experience just to yeah know. full body just, immersion. This is yeah. This is what not to do. Come back tomorrow and say something else not to do. <laughs> Make sure whatever you do, don't do this yeah, you don't, over and over again. You don't, you don't, and, and next time, don't do it with teeth as our well. Our big announcement: Kendall is moving to Florida so he can partake in this conversion clinic. Clinic in, in the home. home. Conversion immersion. <laughs> you know, trailer. Texas, we're progressive. You got to have a clinic for that right. stuff. Right. You don't. You don't like this, huh? You don't like this when I do this to you. No. You, you surely don't like it. I'm looking for conversion. Come Tomorrow, I'll show you how you, 
Not to like it again. Converge and emerge. In Texas, we're... No, I went to California and I realized I'm a Republican, y'all, uh, MAGA, uh, because we went to a drag show, and uh, which was very... It was more performative drag. So here in Houston, you get all the, like, the they're doing singing, lip singing to Brianna. It's very Southern, yeah. Yeah, and there it was like, they had one who was eating mice. Uh, not live, but they were... They were. She had rats in her hair, and then she was... Like, okay, I like it. I'm done Real mice? Yeah. Well, no, not real, not real <laughs> fake, but, uh, but they looked um, they looked pretty real. So she had them in her hair, and then she put one. She opened a, it with a, a mouse uh, in her mouth, and she pulled it out. So that was part of her act. Another one was doing a song I'd never heard of, but it was basically like "I like come." That's the name of the song. It was "I like come, 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 come." I make you come. It was just really weird. So it's just I love it. Okay. Adding that to my therapy, conversion a therapy. Aggressive for you? Is that what you're saying? Well, it was just it was like more performative. So I wasn't like a like I said a southern drag show. Uh, they did have a girl, like a bio girl. She was this cute little skinny thing. I mean, basically she was a stripper, but I guess she excuses herself from not being a stripper because. Um, because she was at a gay bar doing it? I don't she know. She called herself a bio queen. See, I learned that last week. Bio queen is a biological woman who does drag. As a woman. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Woman. Okay. So how, who turned into a trumper? Which one was it? Well, it was just the, the host. The mice? Uh, the host was, uh, was a woman as well. And uh, she was talking about, uh, once she was at one point in a segment, she was talking about the, the bar. So it's one of the oldest gay bars in California. It's been open since around the Stonewall, so it's the late 60s. And she was saying, uh, like, three years ago, so the name of it was The Stud, I guess, Stud Bar or something. Uh, and so... Um, it's a lesbian bar, no? No, it's a, it's a, it's a gay bar. But the, apparently the landlords or the owners, they were always leasing the place out. They got new, owner, uh, new owners of the property, and so the, the rent went up. And so Wait, you can own gays? Own gays, yes. Uh, so the property of the bar, the new owners of the property, so the, the, those landlords started charging more rent. Well, of course they're going to charge more rent because you know, the original owners probably bought that property in yeah. you know, the early 19th. Yeah. yeah. And so with that, you know, you buy it at $130,000 and now it's worth 1.3, yeah, yeah. or you know, or you know, several million dollars. And so yeah, the rent's going to go up for those people. But the hostess was like, you know, landlords suck. Everyone, you shouldn't ever be a landlord. Oh, she made her calls. Yeah. And so well, that was one of the things. And then there was another piece where she was talking about police officers. She's like, "Police officers suck. They're all stupid and so it's just kind of like oh okay well i disagree with I, you there i mean so she converted you to republican yeah i was like well because i was Short like conversion. i mean like i want to be a property owner and rent out property maybe i don't know um it's a good investment right and so but i don't want to like gorge wait is that your big news from san francisco no i'm telling a story oh, though and then uh what else oh and then they had a raffle and so the raffle was for sex workers which i you know contributed to the, the you raffle. could win a sex worker yes no, you were contributing Woof. to. No, Why you were you, you were contributing to the uh, the stability and the mental health. Uh, oh, um, uh, uh, there's like a fund for offerings. sex workers. Yes, and so uh, so yeah, I was just Aren't like we all sex workers. Yes, but Tony. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> Tony can't get work, can't get sex. Jeez. I can't give this shit away. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was very, I'm like, oh, wow. I, I mean, I don't, I wasn't opposed to all of her views. It was just like, they were very like, we're going to Stereotypically talk San Francisco hating too. Hating cops and hating property owners. It was very Bernie Sanders, AOC yeah. type thing. I do feel though, like even in Houston, when a lot of old institutions leave, because, like restaurants and stuff. Do you talk about me like that? <laughs> trying to get you to leave. You still haven't. <laughs> Let me finish the cocktail first. But I kind of agree with this, uh. MC, 
I, I mean, don't, I don't like cops, and but cops protect us. I mean, if you get in trouble, you're gonna call. There's no need to be extreme. I, that's what I'm like. You can cop. There are. I will some, say that I feel like it's such a cop out. Well, okay. For example, this was just a security guard, but I was walking in the tunnels the other day, and there was this lady. She had. She was, I think, probably homeless. She had a suitcase with her, and um, she was in the tunnels. And so the security guard's like, "Ma'am, you need to leave." And she's like, "All I'm doing is, you know, like if she was in any kind of business clothes." He assumed she yeah. was homeless. And so there's a CEO, a female uh, security guard, and so she goes, "Ma'am, you need to leave. Get out of here." And, and she was squabbling back and forth. And so the security guard uh, started kicking the lady's suitcase and pushing her to, like, get up the escalator. And she goes, don't push me. Yeah. And she kicked the security guard in the shin, and that security guard dropped that woman to the floor, put handcuffs on her. So sad. Yeah, and shoved her. And so to me, it's like they do protect us. But I feel like in general their attitude is that. And it's like I feel those instances give everybody a bad name. And if the good cops didn't support that kind of behavior they wouldn't have that in my opinion they wouldn't have to face that attitude but yeah that's why i don't like cops <laughs> i mean I, I, there's, I what does she damage your suitcase that's the important question <laughs> probably i've had plenty of bad interactions with police officers as well being very but i get that they put their life on the line every single day like i mean they don't know if someone's going to pull out a weapon and shoot right. them right so um that's a big risk they do it in is. order to protect us so i i not I all are bad that, but yeah they some of them bad. are I mean, they've done. I've had, like you said, some words right. with some police okay. officers. But yes. Um, Anyways. Well, Tony's getting heated on well, this. Well, no, I don't want to continue this. Yeah. It's very political. Yeah. Uh, what we? What, I don't want to alienate any viewers. That's one of our <laughs> Kendall. <laughs> uh, I like Kendall. Uh, let's see. Oh, what oh, else? Whoa, uh, went to Alcatraz. Had some PTSD because I've I have been in, not in Alcatraz, but ha- having been behind bars at one time <gasps> in my life, I have I uh, definitely was like there was a part where you can go in the cells, and I was like I'm not no. doing that. <laughs> it's just <laughs> too much for me. Uh, and then what else? We went to a bar, and there was a they were um this it was basically you could anyone could enter and you could have um uh they were having a bulge contest so you'd have to strip down to your I mean, oh, yeah and it wasn't just strippers so you'd have to strip down and and to your to your underwear and and walk around the bar naked and did you do it i didn't but spencer a, did a certain someone that i was Woo, the spinter did i love it the certain someone that i was uh <laughs> your lover <laughs> what did he win oh we left early so <sighs> Because he, yeah, yeah, we were, you know, we'd been out on enough yeah, yeah. time, huh? Shrinkage. No, <laughs> no. He would have won. He was just tired. Yeah, we were just tired, so we went. That's awesome. So went out of his comfort zone. He didn't Good want me you. to tell that. He got you all horned up, and then you had to go back to the room. I mean, well, the, <laughs> the thing about the bars in San Francisco, like you don't really have to. I pointed out at one point in the we were walking by, and the bathroom area was open up uh, to the public, so. Not that you could see people going, but there was a stall, which you could see. Oh, yeah. And you saw, I was like, oh, look what's happening there. You could see that one guy was facing the, the urinal, and another guy was on his knees. Um, you know, if that happens in And then you realized it was a mirror. Allegedly. You get thrown out of the barn. Yeah. I've heard. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> he loves to tell that story. Um, but, yes, so that was our trip to San Francisco. It was wow. fun. It's beautiful, though. I love going there. Yeah. And the, light, uh, the, the, Nate, the gay life there, the gay nightlife is fun. Um, so it's good to get out of whatever city you live in. Yeah. Like that's not to say Houston's terrible, but it's nice yeah, to, you need to change what's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, San Fran- and if you live in San Fran, it's nice to get out and see the, 
Yeah, that's why I like traveling. And and it'd been Spencer's first time to go, so it was oh, like nice. so that's why he went all in. He didn't forget him. his bulge, did he? Uh, no, he brought that home with him. So. <laughs> He bought a fan. He got here before he did. Why do you think we had to record the podcast? He, he bought a fan that says something inappropriate that I'm sure you'll see in some future uh, post on Spoopy. Uh, on Spoopy, which, it, by the way, Chris and, and Spencer, don't forget to follow them on our Spoopy podcast. You can follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, see all their memes, and hear their funny episodes. Those two little cackling. They put. They did. We were when we were at Alcatraz. There were some birds that were squawking, and I was like, "That sounds like that you sounds guys." Like your podcast. Yeah, and so they they posted that. Record so. a clip. <laughs> um, so that's uh, yeah. So that was San Francisco. Beautiful city. Had fun. A lot of history there. Hopefully, the birds didn't get any more likes than they did. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did. You could have a contest. Like they entered the bulge contest and and won. But uh, yeah, no some cockatoos. <laughs> good trip. <laughs> good trip. Love going. Okay, there. speaking of inappropriate. Oh shoot! No, I cut you off. No, go ahead. Let's do it. That's Wait, actually, before you do it, before you get inappropriate, let's be appropriate and talk about our Sponsor. friends at In Focus Group. Uh, In Focus Group uh, supports organizations on their LGBTQ journey through training, consulting, and speaking. The In Focus Group team is passionate about connecting organizations and individuals to the power of LGBTQ diversity and inclusion. In Focus Group works to develop partnerships with organizations pursuing an LGBTQ inclusive workplace culture. We know that organizations achieve their best outcomes when LGBTQ employees bring their full and authentic selves to the workplace. Those organizations willing to invest in LGBTQ inclusion thrive financially and from positive brand recognition. Learn more about the work at InFocus Group and how they can help your organization with LGBTQ diversity inclusion by visiting their website at www.infocusgroup.com. That's E-N-F-O-C-U-S-G-R-O-U-P.com. You can check out the InFocus Group blog and also sign up for the InFocus Group newsletter and receive your free PDF, Nine Returns on Establishing and Maintaining LGBTQ Inclusive, inclusive Workplace Cultures, which I, yeah, this, check out that information. It's always good. I mean, we we talk about the, the different pronouns and how to yeah. accept people. And, you know, sometimes we, I think, make light of it. But, I mean, we all know it's it's important that it we kind of we yeah. meet people where they identify the, themselves. And so um, InFocus Group is, is a, a rare organization that's out there uh, helping uh, individuals and companies kind of um, become more woke, uh, so to speak, but become more inclusive in, uh, in their diversity practices. So check them out. Well, that's why y'all call me the they-storian of gay slang they story. not historian not her I, I call you the slang banger i don't I'm oh yeah say, i don't get all fancy so slang. this week's slang bang what segment don't get mad at us the word yeah. of the week is clitorference uh, what <laughs> mm-hmm. wait is that what you did to me a couple weeks ago kindle <laughs> you what, say what is, allegedly what is, what is clitorference so clitorference, you know, you're out with your lesbian, you're out with your kitty girls. The girls, you know. And somebody, it's the lesbian version of cock blocking. So somebody prevented you from getting that punane. Had y'all ever heard that before? I had not. No. No, no. Glory's done it to me a lot. Just kidding. <laughs> Wait. She's prevented you from getting. No, she actually is always supportive. If I see a cute guy, she's like, oh, he's great. Like, lie, lie, lie through your cheek. Okay, well, that would be cock blocking. I know. Though. No, she's not cock blocking. She's trying to get See, this me. is where I get angry. She's yeah, so, man. Oh, yeah. so, so what happens, yeah, when you have a and you're on in Tony's situation where you have a, a man and a woman, like what's what are they what are they doing? Well if they're preventing if she's preventing Tony from getting the rod, then yeah. it's cock blocking. If you're yeah. preventing her from getting the from the getting, JJ. Yeah. 
God's beautiful flowered vagina that he gifted the world. So can you use it That's in a clitorference? S- can you use it in a sentence? Have you ever clitorference Morky? <laughs> <laughs> He's done other things to Morky's, you know. Gross. Use it in a sentence. Uh, we need to help. My her. girl Deborah threw up some major clitorference <laughs> when she wouldn't let me get with D. 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 Yeah. D sounds. Do like- y'all know the lesbian scale? <laughs> no. No. Tell us. There's Deborah, Debbie, Deb, D. <laughs> Deborah being the most feminine, and D being basically okay. A what stud are they again? Man. Deborah. Deborah, Debbie, Deb, D. D. <laughs> Deborah. Debbie. Deborah sounds all like Deb. Deborah, Debbie, Deb, D. Deborah sounds like middle age, you know, sophisticated lesbian. Uh, yes. Lipstick lesbian, very feminine, you know. Deb, she's like girl next fish. door, the next door neighbor. Hey, cute. Deb, let's go get some drinks. These like. Deb's about to leave her husband. Fun. Yeah. Her she's, kids suspect. She's got a new haircut. Her <laughs> kids I, are like, Mom, just do it. You'd be so much happier. <laughs> but the clueless dad who only cares about himself getting exactly. off sexually in bed. And then D is just like, D. Mm. You think you got a penis? <laughs> I need wow. a strap on. <laughs> okay, right. so that was our slang bang of the week. Slang bang. Clitterference. All right, well, let's, Tell uh, your children. let's go uh, right into our topic then. To, uh, what are you talking Kendall? about, Kendall? Well, so my Kendall? topic, have y'all ever heard of Dame Edna? I have not, actually. I Thomas. have, Yes. Do you know a lot about her or you just know her? Uh, well, I mean... Okay, I, I don't really... Dame Edna is tender. arguably, okay. I say Sounds arguably cute. because, of course, RuPaul is having her moment and she is an icon, of course. But Dame Edna is, has had the longest global drag career out of anyone ever, I believe. Uh, she's been doing it since the 50s. But Dame Edna is a drag queen. It's actually a straight man named John Barry Humphreys who was born... February 17th, 1934, so this week. And when I watch, I would watch Dame Edna when I was younger, and then once YouTube came out, you can see all of her work. But I'm like, this guy has to be gay. I mean, he just plays an old woman too well. But apparently he's not. What? So he's had a long, he's been making millions um, as a drag queen, but he's a straight man. Wow. So born... February 17th, 1934. He's a drag queen and comedian. He, he doesn't necessarily do what RuPaul does, which is like sexy sex appeal, songs, reality competition, that kind of stuff. Dame Edna is basically a comedian. He's more like Lady Bunny. I'm just kidding. Lady mm, Bunny. Closer to Lady Bunny. Yeah, but Lady Bunny tries her version of sex. Lady Bunny's version of sexy. It's not like she's trying to be... Oh, Dame Edna's not trying to be sexy. Dame right. Edna is, is an old... At this point, I mean, he was born in 1934, so this point in his 80s, great-grandma. But it was always supposed to be like a housewife shtick. Like more so making fun of the specifically Australian housewife. Because he was born in suburban Melbourne, Kew, Australia. And he was kind of shy, would get bullied. So in the backyard, he'd play by himself. Play dress-up. Not necessarily in women's clothing. But he would create all these characters, so he would pretend like he was Chinese, he would pretend like he was Native American, he was Indian, all this kind of stuff. Um, And his parents encouraged it, thought it was hilarious, but as he became a teenager, he became a little too artsy for their taste. Artsy meaning like he was really big into Dadaism. Do you know what Dadaism is? No. No. Salvador Dali was big into Dadaism. It was this art movement in the early 1900s where it was all about absurdity. 
like just making something like the raining umbrellas like the first dada art piece was a urinal that they put in a art show and it was literally just a urinal and okay. they said it was art but it was provocative at the time in the early 1900s like you're calling that filthy thing art in Victorian times. Yeah. What was the explanation for urinal being art? Like, wow, it's a place where we deposit our waste. Like, uh, <laughs> I think it was meant to shock. Yeah. Uh, well, at first I was shocked Especially by you at the saying time. Dadaism because I thought you were saying daddyism. And I was like, I oh, too. I was, I was like, like Tony, used, Tony used to be into daddyism, but now he is the daddy. So Exactly. Dadaism was a big movement. Kiddos. Salvador Dali was the biggest... Um, probably the most famous person of that Dadaist. field. It turned into surrealism. The paintings with oh, like so the precursor to surrealism. Yes. Okay. But it was like a big break from Victorian times. Where it was mm-hmm. all very stuffy. Yeah. It was, I'd say it's closer to that Warhol period where they were just doing outrageous things. Mm-hmm. So he started getting into that scene, which a lot of Dadaism was just like absurdity. Like, why are they doing that? It doesn't make any sense. And his parents were like, this is just too weird. You're into that weird artsy stuff. His parents are very conservative. Mm-hmm. But some of the stuff he would do, like once he went to college, and he wouldn't do this on a TV show or anything. He would just do it and became known as the guy that would do these outrageous things. He was like a prankster in college. One time he boarded a train, and he was acting as a – he was dressed up as a Frenchman, like this hoardy-tordy French person. And he had an accomplice that nobody knew was his accomplice that would go on before him as a blind person walk around with sunglasses, the stick. And then at, on the train, he would push this blind person down and said, get out of my way, you disgusting blind person. <laughs> and then he would get off the train and run away. And everybody would go help this blind guy and think, what the hell just happened? Yeah. And it's kind of like, why did you do it? He just did it to be absurd and yeah. crazy. So he was the original Billy on the street. Billy on the street? No? Just yelling at people randomly? Jackass is more like it. Oh, okay. Remember the show Jackass? Yeah, yeah. Trying to put it in context. Yeah. Another thing he would do, he went on a plane and he put Heinz Russian salad, which I had to Google it because I had never known what it was, but it's this smelly Russian salad that stinks and looks like vomit. He would slip it. Is it kind of like Thousand Island-ish dressing? No. It's more like a whole bunch of different foods in one more than it is Thousand Island. But he dumped it into a vomit bag when nobody was looking. And then once there was turbulence, he started dry heaving and acting like he was throwing up in the bag and being so loud. I can see my dad doing this. Being so loud. And, and everyone's really concerned. And then he digs his hand and starts eating. Oh, my God. Yeah. The uh. Russian salad. And, like, and oh. no one knows that it's actually food that he put in yeah. there. And another one on April Fool's Day, he planted a full roast, a tray, like a fine dining tray with a full roast dinner, glass of champagne. He put it in a trash can, and then he came back later dressed as a homeless person, <laughs> digging through the trash. And he found this elaborate meal that he pulls out and starts eating, and people are like, what? what? So I say that because once I started doing the research and seeing that he just did characters, it didn't matter what it was. Mm-hmm. It made sense that he wasn't like probably a gay man in a dress. I believe that he's yeah. straight. Um, Wait, so all these characters were, were not... Uh, they weren't. These were all just characters he did in college. Yeah, but they weren't Dame Edna. They were. No, no, these, these were, were Dame Edna. Because okay. Dame Edna was a woman. These were all just. Just building up. They were other. Acting like a French man, so he played the full part. Acting like homeless, so he made himself look dirty and 
um, piled on the clothes and did that. It was, was all about getting the laugh and performing. I was acting like an Asian woman in San Francisco, uh, huh. full on with the peace sign and the the lips. I had several. Oh, I saw the pose. That I was like, extra. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I lo- I was looking cute. You look like a cute Asian. Yeah, you know? the, the pursed lips and the <laughs> tilted head. Most Asians all that are makeup. cute. All them, yeah, and the makeup. As a man engaged to an Asian, I love them all, but my eyes are only for one. So after <laughs> after college, he was doing these stunts, and he joined the Melbourne Theater Company. And again, his parents were like, "All right, uh, what are you doing?" Which is always interesting when people are being told, "No, no, no, this isn't going to work," and, and they do it regardless because for whatever need they have to, and they become huge, yeah, success. And it can take decades sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So he starts traveling around the country right out of college with the Melbourne Theater Company. And he's sitting on the back of a bus when he's going all around these little small Australian towns performing Twelfth Night. And at the back of the bus, he starts creating this character that started out as Norm Average, which is short for normal and average. Okay. You know, that's how he came in. He was making these jokes on the back of the bus to the other actors like with this voice, like uh, he was making fun of the women that would greet him when they got off the bus, like the local hostesses oh, okay. saying, welcome to so-and-so, we'll take you to the theater. And they were these she's average housewives. Like, mm. But the people on the bus that worked with him thought it was hilarious. And in his head, because he's a performer, he's like, this is material I can work with. Mm. I can start um, creating this character. And I think it's like what comedians do, where they're constantly – and writers, they're constantly perfecting something they have in their head, yeah. trying it out to where they, once they finally go on stage and become known for it, it's actually been yeah. in their brains for who knows how many yeah. years. So it started out Norm Everage. And the first time he performed it, it was a little stand up comedy club in Australia. And it was the year 19, the year before the Melbourne Olympics, Summer Olympics, which is 1956. Mm-hmm. So the show was called Olympic Hostess, and he played Norm Everidge, where he was allowing all these foreign athletes, or she was allowing all these foreign athletes to come into her home, and she was the hostess, and she was like this quiet, mousy character, but she was so basic, and she would like brag about the wall-to-wall carpeting and all that. It was cute, but it was not what we know of Dame Edna today. Mm-hmm. And people thought it was funny, but she was like, I think I can work with this. So she eventually changed it to Edna not long after that because she named it after her nanny. Oh, okay. Cute. And these kind of things, she was qualities she was giving Edna. She was basing it on her mom, but she could not admit until her mom was dead oh, that no she way. was okay. playing her mom. It was like an exaggerated, not very... Um, nice version of her mom i should say you know it made her look dumber more basic yeah more judgmental so he's working in the comedy clubs doing this uh john barry humphreys and it's turning into dame edna um he and then he moves to london and he takes this australian character which was actually gaining traction like he had been interviewed dame edna she had been interviewed a few times on local tv shows she was playing comedy clubs, and then they go to London, and that London crowd loved it, hated it, oh. got horrible reviews. See, London humor is very, mm-hmm. and if you go visit London, you and you start interacting with the people there, you see it more so than you're just saying, oh, okay, this is the London humor. It's very, it's kind of biting, I would say, not necessarily mean spirited, yeah, 
It's biting. Kind of it's quick. It's cheeky. It's kind of dry. Like they take their humor very seriously, actually. When they know it too. I mean, it's, uh, you they're very to, proud of you it. Talk to Brits, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we have got a very distinct." I mean, and yeah, they're very proud of it. And sometimes it's layered, like Monty Python. Mm. There's it's it's very smart, intelligent humor versus our versus American slapstick, jokes, you know, fart jokes and whatnot. <laughs> Um, but she took her Australian humor there and it was kind of like, uh, so she got bad review write-ups and she retired the character a little bit. And there was one particular famous London critic that just ripped her to shreds. And she said that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it made me really put more effort into it and perfect it. It made me emboldened to perfect this character that would actually go on to be a global superstar. So she credits this one random mean review for creating, for pushing her to create the Dame. Mm-hmm. I'll say, you know, from a personal experiment, experience, not that I'm doing anything like that she, she is, but when I, uh, when I started doing economy works, like I sat with someone, uh, a mentor uh, at this place I was uh, working at. And, uh, you know, I got, I remember talking with him and he was basically like, what's unique about your idea? You're a dime a dozen. Like I felt pretty defeated after that mm-hmm. meeting. I was like, he's like, why did you quit your job for this? And I was like, oh, geez, <laughs> like this would have been a good conversation to have. Like, but the things he laid out and after he, you know, kicked me in the balls, uh, it was like, oh, like, yeah, you're right. I do need to be thinking about some of these things. So sometimes yeah. that criticism, yeah. I do think it's like, if you're open yeah. to it, like if you're, yeah. I mean, there's been places where someone will criticize yeah, especially me. especially if you can glean something constructive from it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I, the reason, I go back to the cops and the reason I have issues, I don't like people telling me what to do. Uh, and so if, if uh, maybe Kendall can relate to me mm. <laughs> and Spence definitely, uh, but uh, <laughs> Tony's it's like yeah. two people that don't like to be told what to do. Wow. Uh, but uh yeah, they, uh, I mean, so it, it's that sort of thing, like, so, but you have to be in that space, because, I mean, if you think, oh, I'm, you're right all the time, and you're going to just be resistant, but, so, that's cool to hear, you know, it would take that, that, mm-hmm. it that didn't take drop. it personally, necessarily, yeah. I'm sure she was crushed, yeah, I say she, because the character is such a part of John Barry Humphreys, that later, when she wrote her autobiography, it was in the nonfiction section, oh, really, and it was credited, Dame Edna wrote it, you know, huh. not John Barry Humphreys. But oh, wow. it's so identified with this person yeah. that you really can't it's hard to separate the two. So he's not only at this time in, in London, the sixties, doing only that character. He's trying out different ones, but Dame Edna he keeps going back to because he's got a little bit of following in Australia as well. So in the and he's going back and forth, so Australia's loving it. Part of the review was from the London Critic, by the way, was that it's too mousy and quiet, mm. which is actually a really good critique to have because mousy and quiet can get you like an underground, oh, I get it, shtick. Yep. But once she became her big personality, it's like this loud, hilarious, brash person. Boisterous, yeah. Which is going to translate to anybody listening. So at the time, she would, she actually did a couple movies in Australia. So she was, had a following in Australia, even though she was living in London. And the prime minister, in one of the movies she did, it's Edna Everidge, Housewife Superstar. <laughs> the sequet, uh, the uh, sequel to that... Oh, wait, I got that wrong. It's The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. Those mimosas are sinking one. in. Um, the sequel to The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, the 
the Australian Prime Minister had a cameo in that, and where he made Edna a dame. So because of that sequel, she oh. became forever known as Dame Edna oh. Everidge, and this kind of persona grew even more. So so where do I know Dame Edna? From? I'm like I know her, but I can't like I I don't know where I know her from. Like I mean I know I've seen her on TV, but are there movies or like where, what what? Or she had a show. What's her her? Well, she eventually had a talk show that ran for a couple okay seasons, which we'll get to. Okay, but during this time in the mid '70s, John Barry Humphreys, who was playing Dame Edna, was a raging alcoholic, mm. to where they actually. His family and loved ones had an, an intervention and sent him to, they called it a dry hospital where you dry out. He got out, um, wasn't dry for very long, but then someone found him. He'd been knocked out so drunk and like he'd been physically assaulted and woke up in a gutter uh. and no one knew how that happened. Hmm. Um, and after that, he was completely sober. He's like, enough of this. Oh, wow. And this was in the 70s and it was... I his career really took off in the eighties and I think it's because he didn't have the alcoholism mm. holding him back. Yep. He had his first comedy special on BBC in nineteen seventy eight. So he started doing the he got horrible review in the sixties. He kept going and it took him that long, but he had he gained this big following in nineteen seventy eight. Dame Edna had her first comedy special which is a big deal yeah especially yeah. on bbc when it's like the main channel yeah and it's in the 70s and they I only mean, have like yeah. to this day they feel like they only have like four channels in britain yeah period <laughs> so she's doing more and more appearances on uk and australian talk shows um and comedy specials and then she had her own talk show and that's when she really hit off and at that point it's the talk show she had where she played to her full strengths which is to have a monologue, maybe do a cute song, but then have it's the audience interaction. So she would let an audience ask her a question. And like one of the questions was, I know you're married, Dame Edna, but if you weren't, what type of men do you like? Um, and she said, I prefer short men. I can't get enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> what, what? Get it? Because they're so short. I don't. I still don't get it. I prefer short men. I can't get enough of them. Stupid. <laughs> Does anyone get it? I get it, yeah. Because I thought it was hilarious. I, I love it. I'm, I'm living for it. I get it. I'm I now, think it's kind of like me. <laughs> oh, wow. This is why he gets Th- mad at us. This is London this Times is critic Tony Domo over <laughs> exactly. here. Maybe you have to hear it. But speaking of critic, <laughs> while he's got this big following in Britain and Australia, like in the late 70s, the U.S. is like, Who? So the, her big debut in an off-Broadway show in America, in New York, obviously, she got another horrible review. And from the New York Times, the critic was so was, bashed her so much Tony. that she said, I will come back once that critic is dead and give the best show of my life. And she said I had to wait 25 years for that critic to die. And sure wow. enough, that's when it came back, 2000, 2004. And so she did wait until that critic died to come back? Yes. Here? Wow. Yeah. Persistence. <laughs> Yes. It's a long but the game. talk show in 1987, Dame Edna Experience, is really what put her on the map. It's on the major BBC, BBC television show. BBC she kinda, is the uh, right, BBC, trans version. Exactly. <laughs> That's the trans version of And had huge guests like Joan Rivers, Sean Connery, Mel Gibson. Oh, nice. Oh. And the whole thing, she's in control. 
But she's one of those performers to where has complete control of the audience. It's very interesting to watch somebody who's that good at keeping people's attention and playing off their emotions and being very, very quick mm-hmm. because she's ad-libbing a lot of it. It's fun to watch this stuff as an adult now because as a kid you would just watch and be like, oh, yeah, you were entertained. Yeah. And now I kind of watch it more from the like, how is this business mind working? Like, how are they engaging the audience yeah. and what techniques and what are they employing? Was. I mean, to yeah. do an ad-lib, I mean, that's cool. Well, the Dame Edna experience was also played on PBS in the U.S. So it was like the late 80s when Americans really she was on started P- to know who she was. She was on PBS? Mm-hmm. PBS plays a lot of BBC shows. So like the same so network that plays Sesame on. Street? Yeah. yeah. Yep, we have a problem nowadays with drag queens telling stories in libraries. Not all of us. I mean, not... We, well, Dame Edna, though, was playing an old Australian housewife, safe, lived his life as a straight man. You know, it wasn't supposed to be... Anytime someone is in drag, it's supposed to it wasn't get you to think about your perceptions of gender, all that kind of she stuff. She was Mrs. Doubtfire, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, She's okay. been compared to Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh. Or Mrs. Doubtfire should be compared to Dame Edna. Since exactly. She, she was came first. first. Although Robin Williams more famous, huh? So by the late 80s, she had been, her TV shows were on PBS in the U.S., so we knew who she was. 2001 and 2002, she was actually on Ally McBeal. She played a client that turned into a secretary. But she chose her name on Allie McBeal, which was Claire Autumns, which is an anagram of a sitcom role. <laughs> <laughs> I so wait. And in the show, she's credited as Dame Edna Everidge. That's she's what not I was credited say. as John Barry Humphreys. So she took Dame Edna, and Ed Dame Edna became her own like actress. And then she didn't play Dame Edna on Allie McBeal. She played Dame Edna playing a woman. another character. That's crazy. That's that's some talent. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is some talent. Yeah. And you've almost taken John Barry Humphreys completely out of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder Which how, I don't even think he cares. By the way, he's been married four times, has four kids. I wonder how he lives his life though. It's like how do you how do you I mean, that's some great mind tricks where mm-hmm. you're totally disassociating yourself from from that. I think he's a comedic genius that has issues. I mean, once again, the alcoholism. He says he's very shy and much prefer... He has a library at home of 25,000 books. I think he's just... It's like characters in his head, and he's so smart yeah. about it that it has to come out. Like Robin Williams or Jim Carrey or... These people look happy, but they've, they're actually very smart, and they've got some... Oh, my gosh. Sorry, I was being distracted. Like the, Depression or whatever The issues. neighbor across the way, I think he was competing for the bulge contest as well. It was like he come, was in his sweatpants and... On the balcony. Oof. On the balcony. I'm like, hell, what's going on? Okay, I'm going to take a break and just stop the window. <laughs> I'll be disengaged. For the- <laughs> so Miss Dame Edna retired in on March 18, 2012, and then decided to come back in 2013. Because every everyone's doing a reboot these days. Like, share, like you know. I think it was three months later, to where her last appearance she was... December 31st, 2019, in a BBC comedy special. Oh, so she's still active. Literally, as in, like, last yeah. month. Do you think almost. in another couple months, you're like, oh, I need back in the Retire action. again? No. No, she, she's she's still, I mean, her... Well, she when, retired in 2012, when but you, she never stopped. When you say she was her last performance was... Oh, that, so she's that not was retiring. That her, was most her, last, her most recent yeah. performance. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. My favorite line of hers is, I am a very open person, just ask my gynecologist. It kind of reminds me of like Phyllis Diller in a way. Yeah. Well, in her, okay, so Joan Rivers, her just kind of tagline, 
she was known as for saying, Can we talk? And Dame Edna's intro was always, she was known for saying, Hello, possums. <laughs> and she has this purple hair that she calls Wisteria Hued. <laughs> and she has these huge cat eye glasses that she calls face, oh, yeah. face furniture. The cat eye, like, that were famous in the 50s or whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. 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 And her whole thing is she's supposed to look like a dated housewife, yeah. average housewife. That has, as Dame Edna's, John Barry's character has gained fame. Dame Edna is actually acting like she's gaining fame. Mm-hmm. So she's, she'll introduce herself as housewife, millionaires, megastar. Yeah. And over the years, it started out, she would introduce as star and then super, superstar and then megastar and then gigastar. So she you know, she's of kind of... The character is gaining all Did she wear a lot of too. old lady makeup? like from Always, yeah. even when she wasn't old. Yep. But she's still performing. So how do you compare her to... I mean, we talked about Milton Berle before, uh, and we talked about RuPaul. So where does, how does, what is the role... We talked about Divine, too, yeah. Divine, Lady Bunny. Where's, what's the role that... I'm, I'm not ranking them, but I mean, I think RuPaul... I think all these things add to the acceptance of people that aren't like you. So if Dame Edna can easily get into people's living rooms, straight people, yeah. you know, middle-class world. I'm not going to say America living rooms as this man in a dress who's making jokes. I think it makes it just a little bit easier for a RuPaul who, or who, I mean, you think and about for RuPaul to have a show. Yeah. Well, you think about the journey that just happened, right? RuPaul. I mean, you, you go from day Medna and Milton Berle to RuPaul, I mean, and they, to your point, Kendall, you got people comfortable with a man in a woman's outfit, you know, attire, uh, playing this. So RuPaul gets to bring the drag element, which is the sexy piece. But Ru, and where RuPaul has come is uh, award win, Emmy award winning show. She's an Emmy award winning host. She was on the cover of uh, the what? Um, which of the big magazines recently? Uh, was it Vogue? Was it Vogue? Uh, Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. Oh right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then just hosted SNL, like yeah. all these things. Like, but it's also interesting to see how Dame Edna is very big in Australia and England. They have their own. RuPaul is a glamazon. She calls yeah, herself, yeah. which is so American. Yeah, you know, it's much about looks and show business and performing and all this and that. Whereas in England and Australia, they care more about the jokes and the comedy, yeah, and the making fun of themselves and the cheekiness and and, and so not only like the geography, but when you were Thomas, when you were just talking about like comparing these different people. I also feel like each one seems like they would appeal to like a different type of audience or whatever. And so um, I think that's good because then you, like the reach of that type of person is. But it, yeah. what, what this does is because you have someone like Milton Berle and, and Dame Edna, mm-hmm. then you get to have a RuPaul mm-hmm. and a Lady yeah, yeah, Bunny. Yeah, the, yeah. And then you're because gonna, you have Divine, you're able to have Sharon Needles or something. And, because Yeah. And the, so I can say, what happened? Who do we get to have next? I mean, that'll be fun to see. I mean, and you're starting to see some of these Dixie. elements. But mm-hmm. Dixie wrecked, yes. <laughs> but it reminds me of, so Kylie Minogue in Australia and England is far bigger of a gay icon than she is in the U.S. Yeah. We know of her, but they are like yeah. love, love, love. That's like on par with Madonna. Dame Enda in Australia and England is far more of a cultural influence. She had television shows there years before we never ever knew who she was. And also her character's personality fits England and Australia better. So as much as we know her and like her here, I think... 
Well, there's a difference too. I mean, I, there is something to be said about you know, it's. Okay, we laugh when Robin Williams or Dave Medna does it, right? They're straight men, mm-hmm. and and so, uh, but it, there's something. Again, going back to like the example, the controversy around safer dre- when you're yeah. dressing as an old woman versus a sexy RuPaul. Yeah, yeah. Because then you're putting sex out there, right? You're putting these breastplate. Yeah. You're making know, me big, uncomfortable. Yep, yep. And so uh, now you're I trying know to make what you me got gay. Panty. Yeah, and it's like I don't know. It's a it's a weird stapled onto your thigh. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 it's a it's a cool journey to kind of watch that that. Uh, performance art yeah um, and i would say like one thing that i got from it is i'm always like curious what molds people like you know frida she didn't really want to do art didn't like it but when she was bedridden after the accident that's what got her into art and so like you know if his parents had been supportive of him just being you know or he wasn't and they were shy. very supportive of him when he was playing dress up in the backyard yeah. it's yeah. cute but then when he was doing controversial art because dadaism was yep. controversial. They're like, hold up. Yeah. And then when he started making money, they were like, hey, that's cool. No, I I, mean, I would make that more akin to, uh, I mean, what, what Dame Edna did versus what Milton Berle did, more like drag, because the essence of drag is you're developing this persona, this character that you nurture. I mean, RuPaul doesn't have, I mean, her drag alternate, his drag alternative is RuPaul, but my point is it's that one character that's evolved over, over time, right, versus uh, Milton Berle would be, uh, he would just dress. It wasn't the same character over and over again, huh? Dame Edna? No, no. He Milton had some Burl. other characters that were big, but he once Dame Edna took off, he hitched his wagon to only Dame right. Edna. Right, and that's what I'm saying. That's more akin to a uh, a drag, what a drag queen does. And even RuPaul talks about, she started out, her drag evolved. Like She turned into a sexy person, and she didn't want to. She was like, sex sells, I need to be. This mm-hmm. is, If I want to be famous... This is the type of drag I want to be putting out. Where in the beginning, she... I forget the name. Oh, she just said this. I was looking at an interview the other day. She play, was playing literally a like a hooker. Yep. Oh, f- oh okay. She, like a ratchet hooker. No, that's a different one. That's whenever... She's got like four characters. What did Spence say? Star Booty. Star Booty, yeah. Uh. And then she... Before that, she did this very androgynous, androgynous uh, drag where it was like, is it a man? Is it a woman? But the RuPaul we see today was many many years of having evolved to that point of her not giving up and it clicked with people and she kept what worked and she discarded what didn't and a lot of people would give up the first time they got booed off a drag stage yeah yeah well all right well that's a fun little story uh i I, was very cool yeah Oh Appreciate my gosh, you. thank you. Uh, now, now we can go back to okay, drinking mimosas. For All right. <laughs> Kendall spoken. He has spoken. I mean, this is where I check out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Peace out. Uh, but don't check out too soon. Let's hear a word from our sponsors, Economy Works. Uh, we'd like to thank Economy Works, uh, who believes in the power of connection. If you're a company that needs project support to tackle your to-do list, benchmarking, analysis, m- meeting facilitation, Economy Works wants to help you uh, with its talent network, the talent network has over 700 years of experience in growing in HR, marketing, IT, accounting, and other specialties. Economy Works. When we work, the economy works. Find out more Woo-hoo! at economyworks.com. E-C-O-N-O-M-I-W-O-R-K-S.com. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to talk about a um, a famous poet. Uh, we're going to go in literature. We don't talk too much about literature. I, I mean, I'm... Truth be told, I don't read a lot. Like I read, I don't read a lot of books. I don't read a lot of poetry. 
I read. What do you do? Twitter. <laughs> I read news articles, current events. Um, but like reading a lot books of YouTube videos. A lot of YouTube videos. No, I mean I read, but it's more like uh, uh, articles. You try to read us. I'm re- okay. Uh, but uh, but this one I was actually I'm somewhat inspired to read uh, more because she's uh, quite a remarkable person. So Audrey Lord was born on February 18th, 1934, and she uh, was a self-proclaimed black feminist lesbian poet. So. Wait, what was her birthday? Uh, February 18th, 1934. Oh, a day after John Barry Hopkins. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, and actually, I'm uh, like I said, after reading some of her poetry and some more, more like I, I was listening to her read poetry, uh, uh, I was I was really inspired. And it, by the way, if you want to take a listen, she does some poetry reading. Uh, her voice is also captured. Her readings are also captured on the in the Library of Congress mm. uh, online. So you can hear her reading her poetry uh which she's got an amazing voice to read poetry she's got a very strong powerful she's a black woman a black woman voice it's kind of soothing but at the same time it's like, like tony morrison uh sure i don't know who there's that a is. documentary of tori tony morrison the Nobel laureate everyone has to watch i think it's on netflix anyway right. sorry you for love that we have to get netflix to sponsor because you love talking about netflix uh all right so she uh audrey lord was a, a writer she was an english professor at uh, john jay university and hunter college um she helped build the women's studies uh program there uh she was a civil rights activist a women's activist an lgbt advocate um she was a publisher she co-founded a uh, kitchen Table, Woman of Color Press. Um, and so these are all major accomplishments she uh, had throughout her life. Uh, her works basically expressed outrage uh, against social injustices. But I would say, I mean, the word, I mean, I saw that consistently in, in the, like, the write-ups about her. But, I mean, when you say outrage, you're thinking, like, very uh, violent or vulgar words. And I think she had such a way with her words of, like, explaining a situation that was unjust and doing it in a way that was something that you could relate to. I mean, when I say poetry, I normally am thinking about very esoteric yeah. prose. Like, this was very, like, words you could, uh, like, identify with. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it um, in a few minutes. But, uh, I mean, she was powerful, uh, understood to, what like, the cross-sectionality of her, her own struggles, and that really informed her life's work. So, again, she's all the minorities you can think of. I mean, working in HR, it was just like, you're a dream minority candidate, not dream, but it was just like, okay, you want the black lesbian, over 40 year old, uh, (laughs) disabled, disabled veteran. Like that would have checked all the boxes of like being the quintessential minority. And so like, and she, she did actually trachea um, would help. Uh, later in life, she, she died of cancer. So she suffered that disability as well. So then so, she was a perfect hire. <laughs> right. Uh, she, but she had all these things and she understood them and also uh, understood kind of the cross section, like the, the thing that unified all those different groups. Cause she was an advocate in each one of these groups, but often she was, um, she was kind of pushed aside, not accepted in those groups. Cause you think about poetry, like poet. So she, again, she was born in the thirties. So she's coming up in her writing career in the fifties and sixties. I mean, it's not like women are embraced, like let's hear your thoughts on poetry. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially since she was telling stories that were real and powerful. And she was trying to say, Hey, we are women and we are nuanced. And not only am I a woman that has sexual desires, I'm also a woman who likes other women. And I'm going to write about that. So who do you think was listening? You think black, you know, the black, movement the civil rights movement wanted to hear from a loud lesbian um you think the lesbians wanted to hear from a black woman like and do you think women wanted to hear from a lesbian so it was just you know because so 
and they did, and her voice was eventually accepted. But initially, she was yeah. experiencing some some pushback because she was. They're like, "Well, we like that you're on our team, but you're you're, you're you don't fit perfectly, right?" Yeah. Um, so her uh, early years, she was um, she grew up with uh, three sisters, um, and she was a shy girl. Her mother was pretty strict on her, uh, and so and her parents were kind of distant. Um, they were loving, but they were at the same time dif- distant. So she would use poetry as a form of expression, and she had her first poem published in Seventeen magazine while she was in high school. So um, so she experienced some early success that you know people would identify with her voice. Um, she studied in Mexico, which I mentioned this because, you know, she spent a year there and, and while she was in college, uh, and this was a life changing event for her because she was away from everything. Mm -hmm. So she was about allowed to experience things differently, like experience her own individual self. I mean, she was away from her family, uh, but also play a little bit with her sexuality and, and being, a black lesbian in Mexico, yeah. and even though you were in university setting, it was still a different, yeah. uh, different experience. So she kind of leaned into that rather than because she had no no choice really. So uh, she describes that as one of her like major pivotal uh, moments in terms of uh, her her identity. Yeah. Uh, and then she went on to she went back to finish her studies in the U.S. Uh, and she became an editor of a student paper. So again, just. It, it, I mentioned this because it's a small detail, but it exp- it talks to her passion and her mm-hmm. leadership, her ability to kind of get things done. Um, and in the 50s, when she's back, she's in New York. Um, she's living as a gay girl in Greenwich Village. So, again, you think about it in the 1950s. We've talked about what was it, I mean, being gay more so for a man in terms of like the legality of it. Right. Because yep. they were I mean, the police officers illegal. were yeah. were hunting you know, down gay men for having sex. Women less so, but still, that I mean, being a black woman, a yep. lesbian, it's not like there's a lot of gay bars out. I yeah. mean, there were gay bars that would they would frequent. Yeah. And uh, she's black, right? I mean, it's the beatnik movement. You've heard of beatniks mm-hmm. that were like the precursors to hippies. Um, started in 1950s Greenwich Village. Yeah, but it was like white students, right, that mm. were liberal, but they weren't necessarily talking about. So she was in the heart of a yeah. liberal movement, and probably wasn't even a part of it. Right. She said she didn't quite fit in with the uh, beatniks. And I'm thinking the beatniks came around in the early 60s? Right? No, they started in the 50s. 50s? Okay. So she m- uh, missed that timing, though, just from uh, a, a bit. Late 50s. Um, but still, her by her own admission, she's like, she didn't fit in. Because to your point, some of these big progressive social movements were happening, but they were of white women, of white men, of white gay men. So um, it was hard for her to kind of, again, find her voice initially in these different groups. Um, she did get married. So she is a lesbian. That's why I'm talking about her. Uh, but uh, she did marry a man, a white man. Uh, so she, again, just kind of pushing the boundaries. Like, I'm not just going to marry someone in my own race. I'm going to uh, marry a white man who... Especially, I mean, when was this, the 60s? Or yeah, 50s? in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I mean, that was divisive. Which would have made of... And illegal. And, and, some and also yeah. would have made her um, controversial in her own yeah. race. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, yeah. again, going back to my point is like, I mean, she was a proud, you know, civil rights activist. I mean, she went to the March on Washington. She yeah. was a proud Good feminist. Good for her for having the a proud, yeah, yeah, courage uh, to do all that. But that's what she fight for, the right to 
do whatever you want, marry whomever you want, work wherever you want, right? To where none of that matters. And so, and this guy was believed to be gay. So she was living where she was born. Yeah. Was he so cute? <laughs> he might be too old for you now. But well, she was a lesbian. Know. So yeah, living yeah. So they had two kids. Uh, so they were married through the '60s uh, yeah. and then divorced in the '70s. So in 1968 was another kind of pivotal moment for her. Uh, she was uh, she released her first book, uh, but right at the same time she became the poet in residence at Tougaloo uh, University. Tougaloo. Uh, Tougaloo. Tougaloo, Tougaloo, uh, and down in Mississippi. So she was from New York. Um, so she was, and she said the furthest she went uh, down south was to D.C. So it was wow. not, and so this first experience in the south. In, wow. uh, yeah, in Mississippi lesbian. was the epicenter of civil rights. Yeah. The most dangerous. Right. Know. Yeah. So she's like, you know, we're so still. So she was there during a lot of. I think even moments. just a couple of years ago, I saw this where over 50% of people in Mississippi uh, don't agree with um, segre- uh, interracial marriage at this time. This is like two or three years ago. So you can imagine yeah. the 50s, 60s. This is an aside, but I watched last night a documentary on Bugaloosa, Louisiana, which is on the Mississippi border. Yeah. And they were interviewing locals, including black people, that were saying integration ruined our community because they started – our kids started going to school with white people that had cars. You know, we couldn't live up to their ideal and we were getting a better education when it was segregated because we had black teachers that were so focused on us doing well. You Ah. throw us into a classroom with a white teacher and white kids and you're an afterthought. I thought that was a viewpoint I had never thought of before. Well, and just to that point, so poet in residence, she was also teaching classes and so, and and teaching, uh, or teaching people, teaching students. And so she said it was a fascinating experience for her because it helped her connect with her art as poetry, not just as a, I'm a poet, but this is an expression. This is part of our voice in the, the right for civil rights or the fight for civil rights. Because people, I mean, she's with all these students. You think about your university days, like you're, that's as much as you would hate studying, like having really intellectual conversations Mm -hmm. with people were always very stimulating, right? And so she was having those and people were coming to her as the, as the teacher, as the poet in residence uh, for her to engage in those conversations. So she recognized the role she had as an educator to, uh, to talk to people about, uh, about uh, their, you know, using their voice and the power it had. And so uh, it was a uh, it was a big moment for her because, like I said, she it, it helped shape her what realizing the value and importance of her uh, her art uh, being a poet and how again they get they gave her a voice. So she had her first book published that same year, 1968. So it was a big year for her. Um, she's released uh, numerous books and works uh, collections of 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 poetry and, and short stories and essays. Uh, she's got numerous accolades. Uh, a Burst of Light uh, was one uh, work she uh, released, and that won the American Book Award. Um, she also released another popular book, The Black Unicorn. One New York Times reviewer noted, you know, she's a poet of her time, her place, her people. She's best at, uh, at in her most political pieces, whereas not every poet is. I mean, some people can mm-hmm. just be, um, you know, th- with their passion on politics, and maybe you hear it here when we're talking. Like, sometimes it just you start to believe in your own ideas so much and um she's like no this woman actually does it audrey does it really well so um her work spoke to uh spoke to acknowledging our our place and reality and to tapping into emotions um she spoke about the fight and the understanding aspect of survival and survival not just being here on earth but every day that we live is an act of survival and Mm -hmm. as long as we're doing it with purpose and so um the one thing that i i thought was 
one uh, poem that she wrote, uh, Who Said It Was Simple, uh, to me, I just want to read this, these few lines just because it is, it's a way of like how she simply says something, but it's a, it also has a powerful impact. She said, I who am bound by my mirror as well as my bed see causes and color as well as sex and sit here wondering which me will survive these liberations. So she's recognizing that, Mm -hmm. you know, she looks in the mirror every day and she's like, I don't look like everybody else. And I, this is my reality. I see myself as a black woman. Like that's how, whether I see myself or other people, that's how other people see me. And that's going to be limiting to some extent. Right. Uh, and so, and, and that's not just her, but she also, her bed, right? The bed she sleeps in, she wants to sleep with, you know, she sleeps with women. So that's also uh, a limiting factor in societal norms. Right. And so she, she understands that, but instead of that being a defeatist, you know, woe is me, she's like, that's my reality. And now how do we grow from that? Yeah. I mean, so, and I think a lot of people, the reason she celebrated today is just a lot of people saw that those types of messages that she would have in her work is empowering. It's like, Oh, she's giving us hope. I'm, I listened to one interview where another writer was saying, was just giving her praise, just saying it's because of your, your work that I find strength. And when I'm having, a bad uh, yeah. Day. yeah. So there's a, um, we've recently started talking about in the last few years when it should have been it should have been so apparent all along, but this concept of inter- intersectionality to where for so much we talk about black civil rights and gay civil rights and women's rights and all that. And intersectionality represents the people that are kind of like her. That's, that's that, Well, she's mm, the gay yeah. black. When yeah. people think about intersectionality, female, they think about Audre Lorde. Audre Lorde is like the, the, and yeah. what movement is fighting for all those things? Right. Which is why you have to be allied with other movements. Right. Yep. And that's what she she did. Like she was constantly like and bringing, married white man, bringing, which shows that she's her own person. And also, she, I bet she would consider herself an outsider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big I mean, time. Like, what community oh, course, is yeah. going to accept me for being who I am? Right. Because each community probably you're not enough. People rejected her for other yeah, you're like not, for other reasons or yeah. You're not enough, or you're too she's much. Not a purist in any of her. Yep. Or you're too much, right? You're yeah. too black. You're too lesbian, yeah. you know. So you're not, you know. So it's those sort of things that she had to deal with. And then she gets um, uh, stricken, struck with cancer. What's the word? How do you say it? What's stricken. Stricken with cran- cancer. So uh, she got. She done got it. She <laughs> she did get that. Uh, she got breast cancer, and then wrote about that story. So she actually this breast cancer fight uh, was was uh, for over ten years, fourteen years, I think. Oh wow! Um, that it was off and on. It was like she got rid of it, but anyways, she when she initially got it, she wrote of. Well, before she was officially diagnosed, she had it. They, she had a tumor. They said it was nothing, and then they eventually, a few years later, uh, she did have it. Uh, and so she wrote this book, The Cancer Journals, which was basically a collection of her thoughts and and and, and writings uh, during that time. And you know, I was reading someone who uh, a review of that book, but from 2017, and they're like, "Look, I've never had cancer, but I have my own kind of um, disabilities." Yeah, and so. Um, and just the way the power again that that her book that this cancer journal's book like gave people so she's talking about her cancer breast cancer so she has a breast removed um and so she's talking about the which people in the 80s didn't talk about right i mean it was a big deal when uh, uh was the president's uh, uh the betty, ford. betty ford had breast cancer right and talked about that experience and that was like people was ground so this is just shortly well she, this was in the 70s so uh she releases a book so this is groundbreaking right before we have all these memoirs of people going through cancer she's like one of the first people to talk about it the rawness and just saying when you get a breast removed 
all of a sudden these things, these ideals that society puts on you about women and being beautiful and having these nice breasts, she's like, now I'm down one. Yeah. Like, I don't have that. And so how do you rebound and how do you still see yourself as a beautiful person? Uh, she, so the reviewer was talking about how she, uh, this one section of the book, where she's talking about uh, an inner uh, interaction with the nurse and the nurse is giving her a breast prosthetic and she's like, Oh, you won't even notice the difference. And she's like, I damn well sure will notice the difference. Mm -hmm. And so it's that, that sort of thing that people, you know, who are going through breast cancer or in this case of the reviewer who didn't have cancer, just saying, you know, you're right. I mean, j just because I have an illness doesn't mean I'm any less. Doesn't mean I'm mm -hmm. not beautiful. Doesn't mean I can't be beautiful. doesn't mean it's the end of me either. Um, but I am going through some stuff and it doesn't always have to feel good or me look pretty. And the thing about it too, the nurse and that, and that interaction was like, you know, if you don't put this on, think about the, 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 uh, despair, the other, uh, patients will go through. And she's like, look, this is a reality of what our, our life is. Don't <laughs> tell know? me how to patient. So it, it's one of those things that, uh, again, it's just the power and the words and the way she said it. It was just, it spoke to, it wasn't again, high level poetry words. It was very simple and, and, and ways that people could, uh, could relate to it. And so, um, with that, she also kind of, uh, talked about uh, silence and she said silence you know that's the thing that can be controlling and so um, that's why she spoke about it I mean uh, the her cancer experience but also kind of used that and she says not knowingly at the time but as the the power to um, to kind of break through the silence as as a as part of the movements and whether it's a fight for civil rights or feminine rights or LGBTQ rights. One thing she said about silence, she said it's better to speak. Uh, we were never, I mean, she talks about in this poem, we were never meant to survive. But she's like, if we don't speak up, like there's a lot of things that we get put in, you know, we can't say that. And so she was like, no, we have to say that because if we just stick to the norms, we're never mm. going to make the progress we want. So she had a uh, fairly significant impact, again, on uh, feminist uh, movement, the LGBTQ movement, this concept of intersectionality <coughs> excuse me over the course of her <laughs> it says uh, mimosas over the course of her career she released 17 volumes of poetry essays and autobiography um she was always considered an outsider um but again a you think about what she did from from a civil rights standpoint being a feminist being lgbt yeah. she didn't she fit all those things but didn't you know any of yeah yeah but was she like very known in the poetry circles like where was she known po or did she die and then people started paying attention no to her? she was uh uh she was known uh like so she was the uh, uh poet laureate of new york state so uh, governor cuomo uh, uh the so her fame was not really in civil rights or it was as a poet well it was expressed her opinion like, like you don't look at her like you look at like martin luther king right uh so she wasn't out there like that. I think mostly as I kind of did the, the people who were talking about her uh, now, mostly poets, mostly LGBT activists um, are talking about Audre Lorde as a, as a source of inspiration. Um, the black feminists, like that's a, a thing because she, she was a black feminist. And so she gave power to that. She actually, one of the things that she had and the impact she had was um, in Germany. She did a, uh, she went to Germany um, on a United Nations uh, visit one time, and then she uh, got asked back. She had a couple interactions there, but she was there for like a year, and she helped the uh, Afri African German German women like create a, a movement. So she was kind of the birth of that. So, uh, and the folks in Germany give her a lot of credit for like giving voice to 
German Africans. So, mm. which wasn't a thing yeah. before. And you know, her big revelation, like observation in well, Berlin, was probably easy to organize all four of them. <laughs> well, she was just saying it was like in her time in Berlin was like it was just very quiet there. Like not even like the she's like at the time I think she only saw one um, museum or memorial dedicated to the uh. Holocaust survivors. So she's like, we're not giving a voice to anyone. And yeah. So. She rallied the, 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 you know, again, the German Africans to say, you know, you have an identity and it's yeah. good to celebrate that. Yeah, and so, know yeah. that. Um, so, I mean, to your point or your question, Kendall, like where is she known? I think, again, feminists are talking about her. I, I think the LGBTQ uh, community is, is uh, um, I won't have a say, I won't say resurgence, but I think they are, are um, they're finding her voice again. And I would say poets are, are definitely, I mean, they, they appreciate uh, the work that she's done. Um, I, so much so on, on the LGBT front, I mean, there is a organization, a community-based organization in New York City called the Audre Lorde Project. Um, and they're an organizing center for, you'll love all this, lesbian, gay, bisexual, two-spirit, trans, and gender nonconforming <laughs> people of color. Oh, wow. So uh, it might be easier to say what they're not for. LGBT, ST, GNC. Okay. Everybody but straight white. Kendall loves them. He's like, So they serve as a base for minorities to organize and support. EBSW. And advocate for EBSP. Communities. They're really trying to bring, again, the different minority groups. I mean, on their website, they specify Haitian, Latina or Latinx or just all the minority groups. Uh, but they list them out in the spirit of being inclusive. Which Wait, so- I actually love the concept because LGBTQIA plus has gotten so long and none of us understand it. It's just EBSP, everybody but straight people. <laughs> Duh. True. Maybe yeah. you should. I'm part of the e- EBSP. <laughs> no. Let's talk about EBSP is the name of our new podcast. <laughs> Kendall's name. sister podcast. That's the spin-off. Branching off the spin-off. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I would say, you know, when uh, just kind of part, again, she she did die of cancer, just kind of wrapping up her story. She died of cancer uh, in 1992. Uh, she was with her. Uh, she did have a partner that was living with her at the time. Uh, so the cancer had spread from her breast to her liver, um, but her ashes were spread throughout uh, the places where she made a, uh, an impact. She, her, her home at the time when she died was St. Croix, so her ashes mm. spread there. But as um, international in Germany as well. I mean, just because of the significant impact that uh, she had there. There's a documentary about her uh, oh. impact in like with related to Germany. So I think it's on. I won't even. It's say. like. Um, the French love, love, love Nina Simone. Sometimes a lot of Americans found acceptance overseas, especially in Europe, mm-hmm. um, far more than they did within the U.S. So they, they gather this cult following. Well, especially African- Josephine Baker, Nina yeah. Simone, and African Americans. I mean, just because you're not accepted, right? But there were also token. There was a lot of tokenism going on because had they lived there, I don't think they necessarily sure. would have had that much of a better life so but when she was married to the guy was it she just wasn't out yet or she just wasn't publicly ready to be um yeah i didn't uh like because at the time i it, wasn't because she had lesbian experience i mean she was yeah. lesbian in the 50s i think it was just something at the time that she That's was what you like do. well i don't even know or, if that was what she well, would how do you know I mean, you smelled her breath there were there were <laughs> there were a couple of times where i mean she, normally she she wouldn't censor herself um, but there were a couple of times where she was trying to get a footing, like in the African American writing circles. So she did scale back some of her writing because uh, okay. it was about women mm-hmm. uh, and like the, the desire for women. And so, 
Um, so it's those sorts of things that like she didn't try to do that often, but there were cases where she did. So I'm not yeah. sure if she got married because out of like to put on a front. Yeah. But again, if he was gay, then I don't know what they were. I yeah, mean, yeah. It was just probably a marriage of convenience. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the one thing I would just close with, um, well, two things, right? Her, her, her legacy kind of lives on through the Audre Lorde project. You can also hear her readings, as I mentioned earlier, in the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. So we've acknowledged as a society the impact she has. And then just, again, she was the New York State Poet Laureate. And Governor Cuomo at the time, you know, he said, you know, she's the voice of an eloquent outsider who speaks in a language that can reach and touch people everywhere. Her imagination is charged by a sharp sense of racial injustice and cruelty of sexual prejudice. She cries out against it as the voice of indignant humanity. And Audre Lorde is the voice of the eloquent out. Yeah, I already said that. Um, but I, I just think Say that again. Yeah, for emphasis, um, she, again, had a significant impact. And as I was, you know, pick this topic, I try to pick topics that are outside of my comfort zone because I'm, I want to learn. Um, so her being a poet was not something that I was like, oh, but I'm like, I've got to learn more about her because, and I even want to read. Yeah. She was a poet and you didn't know it. <laughs> well, I did know it, but now are yeah. you in the new marketing She's, department? Yes. Our marketing is being outsourced to Kindle interior. Oh, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> that's not a brand anymore. He hates uh, you right now. I mean, all the you time, but right now me. you pulled the curtain. And showed the man behind the curtain. You pulled the curtain back all the time at uh, the bars, and uh, you get oh, that for curtain, it, right? <laughs> Those curtains. Those are gray, dusty <laughs> curtains now. I'm sure. Uh, wow. Um, I know, Speaking I of curtains, did y'all see the curtains on Billy Porter's um, Golden Globes hat? Oh, that was a People's Choice Awards. I People's, think. No, it wasn't the People's Choice Awards, but I forget which one it was. Where he's standing there posing on the step and repeat thing whenever they're all taking his pictures, and he has these curtains in front of his hat that opens up and you can see his face oh my god and he closes it it's up extra again. it's good Love though. It. it's good though um but billy porter audrey lord um you know these are folks that you can also learn about on our website because it's national african-american history month and we've got a uh, celebration of 29 uh lgbtq african-american icons so check them out on our website yeah now. all right so tony bring us home uh actually it's so interesting because there are so many parallels about my topic with your, and this wasn't planned at all. I mean, so many parallels. So yeah, we don't do that much planning. No. Thanks. Uh, we ain't that coordinated, yeah. even though it's going to seem like right. it. Trust me. So Sylvia Rivera, she was, uh, she labeled herself a transvestite. She was a drag queen in the sixties, seventies, very much a gay activist. Um, and she was really, um, her gay activism was focused on people that were marginalized. So, in the 70s, the gay community was essentially fighting for white, mostly males, affluent. And she wanted to make sure drag queens, um, poor people, prisoners, and people of color were kind of included. Um, so that's kind of her history. And she founded a group with Marsha P. Johnson, who is somebody we've talked about previously. She's on our website this month for African American History Month. Um, so she actually has a pretty sad and tragic story. But it kind My of favorite. like made her better, not bitter. Um, the best types of stories. So she was born in New York City, and she was of she was of Puerto Rican and Venezuelan descent. Her dad abandoned her when she was a baby, and her mom committed suicide when she was three. And she was then raised by her Venezuelan grandmother, um, and she got beat up a lot as a kid, bullied because she was so effeminate. And her grandmother did not support her. She didn't condone that behavior. And um, 
So she was she cute? I mean, Puerto Rican and Venezuelan. I mean, as a boy. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, you like them Latin she, boys. She kind of so? had like um, she kind of had masculine features. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so her grandmother didn't support her. So when she was eleven, she ran away from home and she became a prostitute, as you know, a lot of LGBT youth have to do when they um, aren't accepted by their families. So she actually. There was a group of drag queens that lived on the street that kind of took her in and made sure she was, like, kept safe and taken care of. Um, And it's interesting because it kind of reminded me one time I was in New York and this guy was saying – he lived in Hell's Kitchen and he said how dangerous it was in the 80s. And he said, I always had the prostitutes uh, meet him after work. He was a bartender because he said you knew somebody was going to try to mug you and the prostitutes would meet him after work. And they would follow him home, and if they saw somebody going to try to mug him, they would run up and be like, hey, baby, how you doing? Like, to give him enough time to run away. So he had his, like, entourage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it kind of reminded me when I was doing her research that um, it sounded kind of like – because she actually lived down by the docks, which I'm assuming was very dangerous. Um, Well, that's where Marsha P. lived as well. Yeah, yeah. So she and Marsha P. were really good friends. They were activists at the same time. They did a lot of work together because – Marsha P. Johnson also was for the marginalized community um, of, of the LGBT community. When you say they did work together, like did they do three like tag teams? Uh, they were working girls together. Oh, okay. And uh, I mean, they I'll get to it in a minute, but they founded a charity together. But um, yeah, they were prostitutes together, um, and they were both known for um, if they made enough because they were homeless on an, most of their lives they were homeless but I thought if, you were going to tell us what activities they were known for no. like what was on their check their menu list but they were known for uh, really like felching being carry, caring people docking, to the community and so mermaiding if they made enough money clitterbaiting uh, <laughs> clitterbaiting uh, if they made enough money f- the night to get a Lint hotel room king. they would invite a lot of people like other homeless LGBT people over to like um, keep them safe so she started being an activist after the Stonewall riots, um, you know, like when they tried to organize the first pride, uh, you know, they still got a lot of pushback from places where they wanted to have, you know, certain events or whatever. But she was really known for when these established organizations would have rallies or things like that. They told her, we don't want you there. And if you show up, be quiet, stay in the back because they felt that drag queens were giving the, the gay rights movement a bad name and it's going to slow our progress down. And so she would show up at these rallies and she would yell and she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're here because of drag queens. Like drag queens started Stonewall. You wouldn't be able to go to the gay bars even if it wasn't for us. And now you want us to sit in the corner, not be ourselves, whatever. And so she would go to these rallies and she was very vocal. Um the gay community in the early 70s, they were trying to get New York City to pass a, an anti-LGBT uh, ordinance or an LGBT um, protection ordinance. And she fought to try to get the trans community included in that. And she fought very hard. It took from the time they started talking about this, it took a few years before a council would even consider it. But at the end of the day, they didn't include the trans community because they said – it's never going to pass. That's too egregious um, if we put the trans community in there. Um, w- yeah, I'm just thinking, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the trans community, I mean, they, they continue even to this day. I mean, yeah. we've, got a, we've got numerous, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. We didn't talk about it earlier, but um, 
off the air, like Michael Bloomberg, right? I mean, he yeah. was talking about uh, recently there was an article released about some statements he made in 2016 um, that could be deemed anti-trans. Yeah. Um, I say could be deemed because as I read the full script, he was he was saying, I don't think he was anti. I, I don't think he's anti-trans. I just think he's uninformed, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And so, but we do that continuously. Um, we'll put the trans community aside so that we can progress the greater uh, yep. you know, LGBT movement. Uh, and, yeah. and you've talked about this before with the Houston. Yeah, the know, Houston ordinance. Yeah, they definitely get the ago. short end of the stick. Anna. I don't know what that means. I have no sympathy for him there. Okay. <laughs> you're, on, you're, on, you're on an island with that joke. That was not a good. Um, that was not a good. So one thing that she's known for is with Marsha P. Johnson, they founded the Star Organization, which was the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. And it was a twofold organization. It was a political activism. And, and they didn't only fight for trans people. They wanted poor people pe- because the gay community was very um, exclusionary of poor people, people of color. It was a white man's movement, white it people's was, movement. It, it was, was a white, white man's largely a little bit of women like the feminists, but yeah. it was mostly an affluent white man's yeah revolution. Yeah, And it was also a lot of white people that were scared to lose their job. So first of all, if you – and they're fighting to keep their job – that's already telling me you're at least middle class. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it. It's like you see a lot of uh, gay men who who do well, right? They're successful. Yep. They're smart. They a little bookish, right? Yep. And then uh, they do well in school. They get a good job, and then yeah, they're given all that I'm stuff. About Pete Buttigieg. And, and even um, I mean, always, let's talk about people. Like now, there is a much higher proportion of young people, young LGBT youth murdered that are trans or. Um, black you yeah. know versus like a white community but they so they founded this star organization which was political activisms for marginalized communities they wanted to make sure they were represented in the gay rights movement and they also bought a house in the east village for homeless lgbt youth because marsha p johnson and um sylvia rivera they were forced into prostitution to survive as children and so and teenagers and so they didn't want people to go through that. So they actually paid for this house by turning tricks. And they wanted to do that because when these kids, you know, when they took these kids in that were thrown out of their homes or whatever and ended up on the streets, they didn't want them to have to turn tricks because it was dangerous. You know, we talked about like during the 60s and 70s in Cal- San Francisco. I mean, you know, if somebody took a trans, uh, transgender drag queen home, you know, as a prostitute, they thought, am I going to get found out they would murder them or they would not pay them and, and things and, like that. And you had a legal right to murder them, right? Because yeah, we exactly. talked about recently like yeah, the, yeah. The, with the gay panics uh, defense, yep. which is still uh, in 80% of the states here in the U.S. Or yeah, can, yeah, exactly. So because it was such an uphill battle and they just couldn't get a lot of people um, in the gay community on board with including these, she kind of got burnt out and she actually took – about 15 to 20 years off of being a political activist. She moved to upstate New York. Um, and what brought her back in the 90s when they started talking about, okay, let's try to get gay marriage, let's try to get gays to openly serve in the military, she thought, wait a minute, trans people still don't have basic rights. And you guys have moved on, you're still, and you're not including the trans community in any of this stuff. So that's what got her reengaged in um, the political activist fight. So, she was actually active 
uh, during the AIDS crisis, and her thing was people who were homeless because they had AIDS, um, because they either lost their job or got kicked out of their house. She tried to, um, you know, help take care of them. Uh, she actually spent a lot of her efforts over the years fighting organizations like HRC and some of these formal organizations to uh, change their policy. She um, actually resurrected the Star House in 2001 because uh, there were a lot of trans people being murdered. And so um, she wanted to have a, a safe space for them. But it's kind of interesting because um, – so a lot of people said, you know, she was actually not only an activist, but she was such a good role model for these youth, homeless youth, because they would see her. She was Latina. She had to face, you know, homelessness at 11 years old and things like that. And so they would see – and she, she battled alcoholism and drugs – or alcohol and drug addiction over her life. But it never – you know, she was also able to, like, maintain being an activist, things like that. And so they saw her as a positive role model. Um, so that was, you know, one thing that people noted about her. She does kind of have a sad legacy talking about, um, you know, she, she was Latina. So the LGBT movement in the history books doesn't really – focus a lot on her um that she was latina they really just focus on the fact that she was a drag queen a lot and she was she was an activist for many different groups she was for uh she was a civil rights activist and a lot of times they didn't mention that she was gay or a drag queen they just focused on the fact that she was um latina did she identify as as trans, like I, I mean, I so know she her identified now as, as a transvestite, and to her, but that's also might be because back in the day, that's when you it was an umbrella term, right? Or, and it was, and so, but she was basically a man who dressed as a woman. Okay, so a drag yeah. queen, yeah, a drag queen, yeah. Okay. And so she identified as a drag queen, and she was kind of fluid in what she. No, like, but I don't think drag queen because that's not what transvestite is. No, in her definition, it was a man who wears women's clothing. Oh, but like, that, a drag queen is a performer. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So but, she, but I mean, she she lived as a woman. Yeah. Yeah. But was a man like didn't? Yeah. She, well, she identified as a gay man. Okay. But she just liked to dress in women's clothing, and so she was very kind of fluid. She never really, um, I mean, she identified as a gay man, as a transvestite, as a drag queen. She was kind of fluid in what she called herself. I think she didn't really self-identify as one particular thing. Which is good because I don't like the need to have yeah, the yeah, yeah. title. Because a drag queen would be – again, I, we talk about this a lot, but I want to make sure if we, if we kind of stumble yeah. over it, we know – which we have a number yeah. of straight listeners uh, – want to make sure we, we get it right. So when they're talking to their gay friends, they uh, yeah. can know what they're talking about. But a drag queen would be – Chris from a performer, uh, from, yeah, yeah, from from uh, uh, our Spoopy podcast, right? Chris is a, a man. He's a gay man. He, he uh, lives his life as a gay man. Yeah, but will dress up as Dixie Wrecked uh, as a drag performer. Yeah, uh, which is different than uh, uh, I guess Sylvia, who is a gay man, uh, but yeah. dressed went out on the streets in in women's as a tire. woman. Yeah, 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 but didn't identify yeah. as a a woman. Right, no, no, as, a yeah, as a gay man or somebody who yeah wears women's clothing, um, so yeah, it was kind of interesting that uh, you know the various organizations or groups that she had fought for wouldn't recognize kind of the other aspects of her personality, which is kind of crazy. Well, it becomes inconvenient to the the the, the narrative, right? And, yeah. 
uh, I mean, I have to, I mean, these, these sort of conversations are very helpful for me because I uh, have a tendency to be like, well, let's, I mean, let's not get every detail. I mean, let's just build the framework yeah, yeah. and then we can kind of build the, you know, figure out what's going to go in, you know, in the house later. Uh, but uh, I mean, it's important. I mean, when I do that, I'm realizing I minimize, you know, uh, you know, not so much on the grand scale, but I could, if I were to do it on a bigger scale, it could be uh, limiting or not taking into account people's um, identities and their preferences and those yep. sorts of things. So yeah, and also we'll, we're going to get words wrong. Yeah, yeah. And well, and like I know that if we have you as a topic, we support. Yeah. Um, well, well, I I guess my my point is like I, I it's it's easy. I have a tendency yeah, to take words a, do change over time. A, a management view on on things like let's let's do the big picture and we'll get the details yeah. later. And if I were proposing a law, I might have been prone to be like. All right, trans folks, I hear you, but we got If we're gonna move the ball forward, you're gonna have to stay, you know, yeah. back here until then, yeah. and we'll bring you along. But but then they have nobody to fight for. Yeah, them. yeah. And so I mean, with the the what hit it home for me, but we continue to reinforce. I, it's good to have these reminders, at least for me personally. What hit it home for you? When when he was talking about the uh, uh, the Houston uh, the, uh, the equal the, rights the ordinance, equal yeah. rights ordinance in Houston, and where the trans community was like. Uh, because it, in essence, became the bathroom bell, right? Yeah. And, and the LGBT community or LGB, uh, lesbian and gay, by uh, part of the community was saying, hey, no, no, we don't, trans folks, like, if we put this, we're not going to get it passed. And the trans folks said, if we don't get it on the bill, uh, you know, on this part of the bill we'll with, never the, have the, with right the lesbian to. mayor, we will never get it done. And, I mean, but we've been doing that for decades. And we continue to do it now, I think, yeah. to some extent. That's why I'm saying this is helpful for me to be like, yeah, yeah I can't be like, yeah, we'll get you later. It's like, because... Uh, and some of these now. organizations still have a persona. A lot of people view them at like HRC as being, you know, consist of and for a f- very affluent white men. Right. I mean, now that said, they do advocate for. Right, uh, exactly. But I mean, you know, a lot of people still view them as, you know. Because I, I mean, they've HRC has done some good work in terms right. of like the the bathroom bill and when it was being proposed, and not so much the the one that got turned um, um, uh, rejected in in 2015, but when the Texas state legislature was trying to pass uh, something at the state level, I mean, they helped they put some resources mm-hmm. in to make sure yeah, that yeah. you know the full LGBT community was heard. Yeah. But yes, they do definitely have a uh, yeah. You can find out more about the HRC uh, in our <laughs> episode with Tom Jacobs uh, back from. Uh, uh, it's okay to be September. a white man advocating for gay causes, but also know that there are other causes that right. please be open to <laughs> advocating for as well, yeah. or at least being open to. Right. Yeah. Which is why I don't understand gay Republicans. Which is the nature of politics, though. I mean, it's just that's you. You there are certain things that you um, uh, that resonate with you that you advocate for, right? Yeah. And so. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of her uh, her life. I mean, she really was known as being very generous, very motherly, very protective of a lot of these youth that ended up on the streets in New York City. Um, her legacy, uh, while she was still alive, she actually attended the Millennium March in Italy, and she was acclaimed mother of all gay people for the work she had done. Um, they are, New York City is actually constructing a monument of... Uh, Sylvia and her uh, friend Marsha P. Johnson for the work that they did. Um, and then, the, so she actually died of liver cancer in 2002. And that same year, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project was founded, which 
basically is to provide legal aid and make sure that um, everybody has access to legal resources and has advocacy training regardless of um, race or income. Yeah. So many years, Sylvia was thought of as an afterthought, like a sidekick to Marsha P. Johnson. It's good to see her being lauded in her own right. Yeah. There's a Marsha P. Johnson documentary. I think it's Netflix, which I love to bring up. Whatever documentary I've seen. Uh, do you work for Netflix? Mm-mm, but if you know, holla at me. <laughs> they hiring. Um, but so much of this Marsha documentary, she played a part in it. Mm-hmm. It showed her. It was very sad moments, but she was there the entire time, mm-hmm. and she's a spunky was a spunky like fighter. It's it's very. It kind of makes you wonder too. It I didn't specifically read this, but Marsha P. Johnson, as you know, she was basically just found dead in the river in New York, and um, the police ruled it a suicide. But it's like no, she had a gash on her head. I mean, you know, didn't she they was, open up the case again? They redid, yeah. 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 But the 90s is also when Sylvia came back and wanted to be an activist. And she specifically cited, like, um, one of the things was, uh, you know, trans people uh, being murdered. And so makes you wonder if her relationship with um, Marsha wasn't like, oh, my God, she just died. Let me get back there and, you know, yeah. start. Because, I mean, it basically there was a lot of protest and everything that had to be done to get the case reopened, you know, before the case – because, I mean, she also was, you know, uh, you know, addicted to drugs and things like that. And I'm sure the police just said, homeless, drag queen, druggie, let's write her off. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Hmm. I, I mean, it was a good – it's good to know her. I, I didn't know anything about her until this uh, – when we were doing the last mm-hmm. year. The, not we, but the collective community was celebrating the 50-year um, – Yeah. Celebrating? Remembering the 50-year anniversary of Stonewall. Yeah. Uh, we were drinking. <laughs> we were drinking. Yeah. So um, – yeah, so okay, well, that's a good good to learn about Sylvia. And now we've learned about Marsha, so the two pioneers of uh, of the LGBT, you know, modern day LGBT movement. So, um, yeah. Um, all right, so that's uh, that's our episode. So thank you for listening to our podcast and kicking with us. We've just wrapped up another giveaway, uh, so hopefully you, you were one of the winners. So kudos to those who have won. Jessica Mahalik. After Justin Walker and Samuel Owens. Yeah, but that was last week, so now we've got another one oh, just wrapped right. up. So, uh, well, Alzheimer's, let them have their shout-outs. Oh, 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 uh, so a special thank you to uh, to, to them for uh, listening and leaving a review. And like I said, we've got another one uh, underway that we've just wrapped up when this episode's coming out. So um, a special thank you to our guy who keeps our sound in check and gets our our uh, episode out on a regular basis, Spencer. Uh, again, follow him on Large Poopy Podcast with Chris. Don't forget to subscribe so you can hear future episodes. You can visit our website at letstalkaboutgaystuff.com. You can follow us on on Facebook and Instagram at Let's Talk About Gay Stuff and on Twitter at Talk Gay Stuff. Uh, I know we just wrapped up our review uh, contest, but feel free to leave us a review. We, we love uh, uh, hearing what you think. Uh, so you can do that at Facebook. You can do it on Apple Podcasts, <laughs> wherever you'd like. Um, if you don't want to drop it in public, you can drop us a line at let's talk about gay stuff at gmail.com. Also, we mentioned this earlier. I will say that I got a review directed towards me and it trashed me. It cut me to ribbons. But what? you know what? I ain't going to let that get me down. What are you crying, Kendall? What did you say? What did, what did it say? Oh, it said I'm bitchy, angry, too woke. L- liberal politics. <laughs> it's okay, though. What did they say about you, Tony? Nobody says anything about Oh, he loved it. Oh, they said Thomas and I were well-researched. They said you were well-researched. Good job, Tony. Oh, me not so much, but that's okay, though. We know who Employee of the Month is. I'm like, am I cute? He's like, well, you're well-researched. 
How does that work? I'm like, thank you. Um, Take that to a job interview. Make that your grinder profile. <laughs> well, research. Well research. Uh, yeah, so thank you for listening uh, to Let's Talk About Gay Stuff on our Listen Works net uh, on the Listen Works network. Uh, and with that, we're here. We're queer. Get used to it.